In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. We journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution want to take a minute to thank our subscribers. Because of your support, we were able to make this podcast available to everyone. Our reporting and local journalism is because of subscriber support of our newspaper. If you are not a print or digital newspaper subscriber, join us. Go to AJC.com and sign up today. Thank you and continue to follow our reporting in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and online at AJC.com. And for today's episode, we're joined by Tamar Hallerman, the AJC reporter extraordinaire and former Washington correspondent. Uh, We're going to do something fun. We're going to look back at our predictions around this time last year for what lied ahead. And of course, no one could predict this pandemic would have the effect it's having. Um, but there were some things we, we might have nailed, and there's things, things we completely missed. Tamar, thanks for joining us. Hey, Greg. How cheerful and oh so very naive we were in December 2019 when we sat down to record this episode last year. Sat down in person, too. I remember I those when we used to go to the studio at the AJC and, and actually get to see each other face to face. I know. Only a foot or two apart. Imagine that. Imagine when we'll be able to return to that. It's yeah, be weird. I still cringe when I see that on TV. I'm like, come on, it hasn't been that long. <laughs> but it's amazing how quickly we get in this mindset. Um, and this will be, this is all being put together by our supremely talented producer, Bria Felicien, who is going to be playing some of our audio from our predictions in December 19. And let's start with our first one, um, which I think, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll let the jury decide. But it was voting rights. Georgia turned into a negative example in 2019. Georgia became the, after the 2018 election, became the the battleground nationally over voting rights. And um, we predicted that it's going to be a major issue in 2020. And I think that's accurate. Let's, Let's listen to some of the audio, right? A lot of these issues are not new. The long lines of the polls different standards for, for, for counting provisional absentee ballots, um, you know, precinct closures close to elections. These are issues that have festered for a long time, but last year's, I should say 2018's, uh, very narrow uh, gubernatorial race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp and the, and the, and the fact that voting rights was, was squarely at the center of it really kind of propelled it to be a, a, a you know, 
into the national spotlight. And expect this to be something that that plays out for for 2020 as well. Um, You know, you've seen national headlines with with any sort of voter role purges. Um, there's the ongoing litigation that Stacey Abrams' group uh, Fair Fight has brought against uh, Georgia's voting system. And you also see Democrats who are continuing to push for things like paper ballots, a revival of the full Voting Rights Act from uh, 1965. So this is going to continue to be an issue going into 2020. So, Tamar, do you think you were spot on? Do you think we, 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 we nailed the voting rights uh, aspect of this? <laughs> Voting rights was certainly an issue this year, but not necessarily in the way that we thought it was going to be. Of course, there are still lawsuits ongoing over some of the voter roll purges that that we um, you know were hearing about in 2018 and 2019. Of course, the ongoing litigation that Stacey Abrams and her group Fair Fight uh, brought against the the voting system. But what we're talking about at the end of the year is kind of the the talks about voting rights um, that Republicans are talking about being led by by Donald Trump. Of course, they're, they're not going to use the same term voting rights. They're going to talk about kind of an unfair process, um, you know, ballots being thrown out or, or not counted properly. And it's an issue that's really thrown the Republican Party into complete disarray right now, where you have uh, statewide officials like uh, Brad Raffensperger, even Chris Carr, the AG to a certain extent, and, and of course, Lieutenant Governor Duncan um, defending the, the state system against uh, President Trump and a lot of his allies who are asking uh, for a lot of these votes to be thrown out and for the election to either uh, take place again or or for the electors to, um, you know, the Republican electors to be put into place over the Democrats who won in Georgia. Yeah, I mean, a couple of major things happened, obviously, with the pandemic. There was a surge of mail-in ballots that I don't think anyone um, could have rightly predicted. Um, we, We might have been able to predict a lot more mail-in ballots because that was just trend, but a enormous surge and that Democrats were winning overwhelmingly because President Trump had spent much of the last decade denigrating the mail-in system. So Republicans were more likely to, to vote on election day and, 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 and early in person and less, a lot less likely to vote through absentee ballots. But you're right. Uh, the script has kind of been flipped. It was Democrats warning of voter suppression of efforts at the ballot box, tacit implicit or just outright brazen uh, to discourage voting, whether it be closures of poll polling sites, whether it be poorly trained staff workers, whether it be um, improper equipment, and whether it just be confusion over this new voting system. And what we saw back in June for the delayed primary was a semi-disaster. I mean, we, we call that a meltdown on the front pages of the AJC, but clearly we had hours-long lines. We had a system that wasn't we had poll workers who were not prepared. We had election county staffers who who were caught off guard by the surge in interest. Um, but by November, we had a pretty smooth election process. It's just been the fallout of President Trump with his extraordinary claims, uh, false claims that the election was rigged and his efforts to overturn a free and fair election that has really uh, changed the entire dynamic here. 
You know, what's so interesting going into the year was there was so much criticism from Democrats and advocates of of paper ballots uh, over this Dominion voting system that the state ended up choosing. And what's so fascinating as we come out of 2020, who's leading the charge against Dominion voting? President Trump and his allies. In a lot of these lawsuits we've seen, we, we've heard a lot of false claims about the system being ch- tied to the late Venezuelan leader Hugo Chavez, um, you know, it being a Democratic firm, all sorts of things. And, and it's going to put a lot of pressure on the system going into 2021, 2022, about whether we keep the system, how it's going to work. Uh, another interesting dynamic we saw is, is Brad Raffensperger. Um, you know, he was very much a villain on the left for a long time because of, you know, his selection for these voting machines, his, uh, you know, the, the voter purges and a lot of the uh, voting policies the state has implemented. But by the end of the year, dare I say, he, he's become a little bit of a resistance figure on the left, especially kind of in his lonely quest to say, no, there was not massive fraud in Georgia based on all the evidence we've seen and and really being one of the most high profile Republican officials in the country to be fighting some of these allegations that Trump and his allies have been putting forward. It's, It's a pretty amazing, it's a pretty amazing thing when my Parents who live in Virginia um, know Brad Raffensperger by name. Uh, friends in D.C. who work at foreign embassies who who know Brad Raffensperger by name. It, it is such a jarring shift in dynamic. It is. And all that attention, uh, especially from, from liberals around the nation, will give him not a single lick of good in the 2022 Republican primary. So he's in a whole lot of trouble. Uh, but that's a story for another day. Our, our, our second um our second subject here is Stacey Abrams, uh, speaking of 2022, when we talked about her growing national profile, uh, she, at in, in early 2019, rebutted the State of the Union address from President Trump. She raised tens of millions of dollars. She expanded her fair fight voting rights group across the country. She started a census uh, fair count group. She wrote a book. She was all over the media. And we predicted that she would continue to have an outsized influence. Let's take a listen. Her role in profile has had an outsized influence ever since her narrow defeat to Governor Kemp. And that makes her the seventh biggest political story in Georgia this year. And she could well become one of the, you know, the number one or number two next year um, based on how 2020 plays out. Because in defeat, her her profile has grown exponentially, it seems, this year. So... Um, we predicted that she could well become the number one or number two story of this year, depending on how 2020 plays out. Uh, I don't think that's the case. <laughs> I think it's fair to say she is not up there with the pandemic, with the economic crisis, and with President Trump's election defeat and his ongoing battle to overturn the results. But she's clearly going to continue to be one of the top stories in Georgia, uh, not just not just in 2020 and 2021, but but throughout the really probably the next half of the decade. Yeah, you saw a lot of national publications write big stories about her after Joe Biden ended up carrying Georgia's 16 electoral votes and talking about a lot of the work that she did in the lead up to her gubernatorial run in 2018, registering voters, uh, especially getting people of color, other low propensity voters active and and kind of accustomed to coming out for these election cycles um, and, and kind of um, kind of crediting her for, for Georgia's purple 
status. Um, some things that we didn't see for her this year, of course, she was not picked to be uh, Joe Biden's vice president uh, or, or her uh, his running mate. Uh, we've seen a little bit of mention about her name potentially going to a cabinet position, but she's not necessarily considered a front runner. Um, she, of course, did not end up challenging David Perdue for Senate, despite being heavily lobbied by Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. And even as recently as a few weeks ago, after the election, you heard him still talking about how he how he was really sad he wasn't able to convince her to run for Senate and how we might not have had these these dual runoffs if, if she was on the ballot. Um, so certainly hers is a name that we're going to keep hearing going into 2021. Of course, she's seen as a likely challenger of, of Brian Kemp. Yeah, no, and she, she's she's going to, I'll be stunned if she doesn't run in 2022 against whatever Republican ends up running for governor, if it's Governor Kemp, if he has a primary challenge. Um, and you're right, she played, she's continued to play a, an enormous role, just not She's not the you know number one or number two, number two story of the year, but enormous role in democratic politics, and and you know and hand picked, hand recruited I should say, uh, personally recruited Reverend Warnock to run for one of those seats. Um, so built 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 the party's apparatus around him, and raised staggering amounts of money um, for those Senate runoffs, and kept a lot of national attention focused on Georgia, and was one of the one of those voices that said, and this segues to our next topic, was one of those voices that says that Georgia should be in the presidential crosshairs. Georgia should get the sort of attention it did not get in 2016. And let's go right to that, because she wrote a memo um, sometime late 2019 saying it would be malpractice for, for national Democrats to ignore Georgia. And Georgia was ignored in, in 2016, for the most part. No, neither presidential candidate nominee uh, came to Georgia really after March in 2016. They only opened offices here near the very end. Um, this was completely different. Let's listen to the audio about our predictions. It was interesting to see how many top-tier candidates were coming here to, to show that they thought or, you know, to broadcast that they saw Georgia as a battleground state. And a lot of that did come from Abrams. She's huddled with most... I think pretty candidates. much all the candidates. Exactly. To, to talk about issues that she cares about, particularly voting rights. And, and you saw a lot of those candidates then turn around and immediately do events right after touting how much not only did they believe in Abrams, but how much they saw that as a top tier issue. What we still haven't seen is much on the ground presence from these these campaign op- operations. They all have offices and staffs in early voting states like South Carolina, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada but they don't have any real big structures here yet in Georgia. Um, and that'll be, and they're starting to develop them in some of the Super Tuesday states. Georgia's not one of those states, but they're starting to see that a little bit. But as the year ended, I got word that Elizabeth Warren had some paid staffers now in Georgia working, um, you know, kind of seed the ground for her campaign. So we'll see how much Georgia will become a battleground state. But clearly, even Republicans were saying this year that, hey, Georgia's, Georgia's on the target list. Well, Georgia was certainly on the target list. And for all the proof you need of that was how often President Trump visited in the final weeks of of the election. Um, He visited Atlanta. He visited Macon. He visited Northwest Georgia the Sunday before the election. And this time, too, Democrats followed suit. Former President Obama visited. Um, President-elect, now President-elect Biden visited Warm Springs in Atlanta. Kamala Harris came multiple times. So... We got a tremendous amount of attention and also a, for, for Georgia, a tremendous amount of resources. Millions of dollars were spent on TV ads and on visits and on and get out the vote efforts. All this stuff contributed 
to Georgia's really close dynamics this year and the narrow flip for Joe, for Joe Biden of the state. And we've never seen the kind of attention that you know, that we were getting in the lead up to the general, but especially now in this runoff, presidential level field operations that would normally be reserved for a state like Florida or Pennsylvania, you know, your traditional battlegrounds, that but on steroids. This entire apparatus that was set up by the political parties and especially the Republican Party to reelect Trump nationally, they ended up diverting a significant chunk of those resources down to Georgia. So staffers who were on the ground in, in battleground states around the country have now been moved down here and fanned across the, stri- the state to go knock on doors and engage with voters in a way that Georgia's never seen before. Yeah, a lot of those guys are staying put, as you said. And I'm hearing stories about just People wanting to volunteer from other states and being told, stay home, call, donate money, write postcards, find other ways to help, text message people. But Georgia, both parties kind of have it covered here. Um, We're going to go to our our final two stories. Before we do, we can talk about some of the things we did not even begin to predict. First off, the pandemic and the ensuing um, financial fallout of that. Uh, there was a, a pandemic going on in, in China at the time. Um, we didn't know. It was just it was just starting to make headlines. Of course, <laughs> it's hard to predict um, what, what what a tremendous toll it would have taken. It would probably be the, the the biggest or second biggest story of the in the nation in many in many um, metrics. Um, but yeah, uh, the effect that had on our economy and our jobs market and our our political process has been huge and certainly contributed to Joe Biden's victory because he focused his final message his closing message on how republicans in his view downplayed the 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 um the potential disaster of this pandemic and the hundreds of thousands of american lives that were claimed by this disease yeah, this was absolutely messaging gold for for Democrats, not only as a way to kind of distinguish how they would have responded to the, the crisis compared to the way that the Trump administration has, but for an anti-corruption candidate like John Ossoff to use stock trades made by Senator Purdue kind of related to, to companies who, who did have a hand in the, the coronavirus response as a way to kind of uh, point to, to ethics issues. Not only that, but it really remade the way that candidates were and were not able to engage with voters in the in the primary and the general election. You really saw Democrats completely stop any sort of, you know, in-person door knocking and canvassing after March. And, you know, Ossoff was only just beginning to do campaign events in September or October. And Republicans were so convinced that this was going to be, um, you know, the downfall of Democrats here. And, you know, to a certain extent, Maybe down ballot, you know, they didn't do as well as Joe Biden, but at the same time, they're kind of still in these races, yeah, Greg. Yeah, and let's get right to the the second biggest story of the year prediction. It should I should say was governor appointing Kelly Leffler to that Senator Isaacson seat, and we call that Kemp's biggest decision of his first year and maybe his entire term. He always said he wanted to look outside the box. He didn't necessarily say he would pick someone outside the box, but he would always wanted to look outside the box. And someone who's unconventional in Republican terms, this is just candid, a, a female Republican in a statewide office is outside the box. There hasn't, other than a, a public service commissioner, um, not since Karen Handel has there been a high-ranking Republican statewide official back when Karen Handel was Secretary of State. Um, so we're talking about a party dominated by older white men and so Kelly Leffler, he hopes, is, will, will help appeal to suburban women and, and just women throughout the state in general who have 
turned off the party or at least uh, you know, maybe fled to the Democrats or at least staying home in these elections. How she does that will be the biggest story, one of the biggest stories in 2020, because so far she's saying she's kind of she's hewing to the conservative line. She's saying she'll support President Trump. She will oppose impeachment. She will oppose expanding abortion rights. She will support gun expansion, gun rights expansions. You know the traditional conservative um, issues. But how she, you know, intends to broaden the party's tent remains to be seen. Exactly, she's a real line to toe. She she has to win over a lot of the conservative activists who are really rooting for Doug Collins toward the end. There, I would still say it's probably one of his biggest decisions, maybe of his term. But the other big decision that now. Uh, sits there right with that is his decision to object to President Trump's demand that he call a special session to overturn illegally overturn the election results. Now that one that decision was probably a lot easier than than picking from hundreds of applicants to basically select his own running mate in 2022. Uh, but still, his decision to defy the president um, basically follow state law. Uh, will go down as another one of his momentous uh, moves of his of his four years, but certainly we're still seeing the repercussions of Governor Kemp's pick of Kelly Leffler over Doug Collins. Exactly, and you hear President Trump, you know, talk about stuff like, and it really was an inflection point in their relationship because until then they were extremely, um, you know, Kemp was extremely in line with President Trump. The president, of course, endorsed Governor Kemp ahead of his primary runoff with Casey Cagle, which which really caused him to win by by a ton of votes after that. Um, but it, but it was really kind of the, their first key moment of disagreement, and you know the president definitely kind of logs any you know disagreement in his book of grievances, I guess. And it's something that, that you would see in stories um, that would pop up in the national press about stuff going on behind the scenes at the White House. And he would he would kind of mention moments like that where he was really displeased that, that Kemp did not appoint uh, Trump ally Doug Collins to that position. And you'd see it over and over again. And that sort of set the stage after the election uh, as he was pressuring the governor to um, you know, to overturn these election results uh, for him to really go on the offense against Governor Kemp. And back then, the context of all these decisions that we were writing about and that was being talked about nationally was that Governor Kemp picked Kelly Leffler because he hoped that she could appeal to suburban women who had been alienated by President Trump. Uh, and these were suburban women who might have been moderates or conservatives, but couldn't stomach his rhetoric and his brand of politics. Well, uh, what ended up happening and we found this out very, very quickly in 2021 was, uh, sorry, in 2020, is as Doug Collins was rumored to be, is threatening to run, he quickly got in the race and and even before he got in, forced Senator Leffler um, to, to defend her flank. So she gets, the moment she gets in office, she tells everyone who can who has ears that she's pro-Trump, she's pro-life, she's pro-guns, she's as conservative as you can get. So doesn't give... Governor Kemp, that that route that I think he wanted uh, to be able to to have a sort of softer side of the Republican Party in Georgia. Instead, she ran to really Governor Kemp's right in many ways. And and looking at the vote totals in 
suburban Atlanta, you can see that a lot of those suburban women that that Governor Kemp was hoping to woo by appointing Leffler to that seat ended up voting for for Joe Biden, or at least we can sort of infer that based on um, a lot of the exit polls and and demographic data that that we've gotten so far. Um, you know, appointing Leffler also created a really messy and expensive opening a special opening round of this special election where you had 20 candidates on the ballot and really kind of a, a death fight between Collins and Leffler to kind of prove who was the most conservative, which was the the last thing I'm sure the governor wanted when he appointed. Leffler. I think he was he was hoping that the, the field would clear after that happened. And instead, they had to spend so much of the, the year, her and Collins, tangling over their conservative bona fides. And, um, you know, they really did let Raphael Warnock kind of skate by into the second round of, of this runoff. And you've seen over the last couple, couple of weeks, she's had to rush to, to define him and kind of fill that void in a way that she wasn't able to do in the opening round of the special. Yeah, and those fissures are still there in the Republican Party in Georgia and will continue to be a major story in 2021. A lot of the focus is on how President Trump has sharpened those fissures by by some people's or loyal supporters of his saying that he the election was rigged and stolen from him and all that. And others are are either saying move on or backing the state law. Uh, but even before those that civil war, there was a even deeper battle going on in Republicans between Governor Kemp's camp. And and the the supporters of Doug Collins that really divided the state, and those those tensions are not those that friction is not easy to to smooth over right now, um, and will continue to haunt Republicans, I think all through twenty twenty one, and that's that's where our final our final story is because, look, we knew there would be two Senate races, we knew we'd be here, we just did know how enormous the stakes would be. Let's take a listen. Just as rare to have a dual Senate race between uh, two Senate races going on at the same time for Leffler's seat as well as David Perdue's seat. We have four Democrats at least in that contest now too. We don't know what Democrat will emerge. Matt Lieberman has announced that he will run against um, Kelly Leffler, but the party's establishment will probably back another candidate as well to get in that race. And that all kind of leads us to another 2020 story. Um, we could well be here a year from now talking about this Senate race that still hasn't ended. <laughs> Heaven help us. <laughs> yeah, in January 2021 runoff. If no one emerges in this special election, we you were You called right. it, Greg. <laughs> yeah, you called we, it. <laughs> we, we are definitely here a year from now talking about the Senate races that haven't ended um, because no one's emerged in the special election. And not only that, we've, the, the, the David Perdue race also lacks a clear winner. That was harder to predict um, because David Perdue came in with such enormous advantages. He came in with a huge war chest. He didn't ever face a Republican primary challenger. Um, he had the full backing of the state Republican establishment, unlike either Kelly Leffler or Doug Collins. So he had all these advantages but still couldn't muscle out an outright victory. And, and now here we are, two U.S. Senate races that will decide control of the chamber. And that's what we really didn't know a year ago, was was that these two races would determine party control of the Senate and that we would be at the center of the political universe facing a flood of something like $400 million Plus, in political yeah. advertising in, in only a couple weeks. And, and I think... That's the biggest surprise of, of 2020. Not only are we a battleground, but we are the center of the universe right now. Yeah, Georgia flips, which is a huge surprise. I think even the most uh, optimistic of Democrats couldn't couldn't or 
were, were wary of predicting that Georgia would flip uh, by 12,000 or so votes. But yeah, here we are. I think no matter what, and the way that we were framing the stories all through early of, of 2020 was no matter what, the special election would be of significant importance. It would be looked at as a referendum on President-elect Biden or a referendum on President Trump's second term, you know, or another sign of whether or not Georgia is truly a, you know, a battleground, all that, all those things, even if, even if we were talking about, you know, the 60th Republican senator or 60th Democratic senator, right, um, would, be, would be in play here. But no, yeah, the fact that controls on the line, $400 million plus has been spent, will we'll far surpass half a billion dollars by January 5th. And here we are, and we still don't know the answer to those questions is who will control the Senate, who will win these races. Polls are going to show really tight contests. Every poll we see in December, I'm sure, will show within the margin or really close to the margin. Um, and, you know, all bets are off. It's going to be really fun to cover. Yeah, no kidding. And, and you know, this last one, it, it so much is more of a reflection on the rest of the country than us. The fact that, that these two races will determine control of the country. And it shows that there really was a lack of coattails uh, for Joe Biden as he was running this year. Democrats were so optimistic that they could easily take control of the Senate. And there were half a dozen races where, where it really looked like they would be able to, to kick Republican incumbents out of office and they weren't able to do so. So like you said, we always knew that especially this Leffler seat was going to go to a special. Uh, and, and, you know, we even, you know, the, you did predict that, that the Purdue race could go to an overtime battle. But the fact that we're here. Which is not until like September. <laughs> yeah, sure. But it speaks to kind of the, the national picture of how, um, you know, it was a great year for Democrats in certain ways, but it was also not so great a year in other ways when you look at the congressional map. Well, Tamar, thank you for joining us. I can't wait to do the predictions for 2021 that will be really out of whack (laughs) when we talk about them in 2022. (laughs) But you're the best. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me and Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.